Thank you, Denny. When I was a uh, youth pastor, uh, we used to, uh, used to play a game uh, with our students. It's one of my favorite games. It was also one of my scariest games. And um, we, uh, students would gather, and then we would, they would form teams, and then we would hand them a small paper clip. Do anybody know this game that we played? It's called Bigger and Better. They had two hours to go trade the paperclip for something bigger and better. Then to trade that for something bigger and better. And the team that came back with the most impressive thing that they could trade up for would be declared the winner. Now, in youth groups, you think, oh, what are you going to win? Well, sometimes we'd give out things. Sometimes we would just make up points. The younger the student, the easier they were fooled by the point system. That's 100 points. Uh, they couldn't trade their points in for anything, right? Um, and, uh, and every year, it would be impressive, the things that would come back. And this is why it scared me, right? Because it was a couple of things. One is this. You guys did trade this legally, right? You just didn't grab this. So they would come in with something big. Sometimes it was like a chest freezer, right? Um, one time the students came back with a whole bedroom set. Someone's like, take our bedroom set, right? And, um, and so they set it up within our, within our big room. They came in and there's like literally this 1963 bedroom set with the, you know, the dresser and the bed and, and the whole thing. And then, of course, in the back of my mind is, I'm going to be the one that has to get rid of this. My favorite one was the team that made everybody go to the parking lot because they had gotten a pontoon boat. They had traded within two hours a paperclip up to a pontoon boat, right? And, um, and then, again, we had to go, what are, what are you guys going to do with the pontoon boat? And so juniors in high school uh, overestimate their sense of, you know, what we could do with it, right? They're over, uh, their, their parents had to step in. And, um, and if, for those of you who have ever owned a boat, you know that if someone comes to you with a paperclip and says, wait a minute, you will take my boat, right? I had a season where me and my wife owned a boat. And, um, and it's why my uh, children had to wait a year to go to college, because it just takes everything, right? So the, thing that, the reason why I'm talking about bigger and better is because Jesus is going to, uh, in the, um, on the Sermon on the Mount, we're at a place where Jesus is going to talk to us about something very difficult and very personal. Um, he, this morning, we're at a place where we're talking about um, uh, our sexuality, lust, adultery, and coveting. And like bigger and better, the trap that's easy for us as people to fall into when it comes to lust and coveting is to constantly trade up thinking we're getting something bigger and better. And sometimes we end up with something that overwhelms us and does not deliver. And we know that our culture struggles with this. Uh, but it's something that we often don't talk about as, as a culture. It just is what it is, right? Um, it's, if, but if we're really honest, especially uh, for people of faith, we know that our, our culture um, sexualizes people. Um, uh, most of us have friends that have fallen into adultery. Uh, 
we have a hookup culture, and the proliferation of of, of uh, pornography online, which gives uh, us almost 24 hours a day, uh, 24 hour, you know, a day access to things that um, most cultures and most um, uh, people that have lived in the world have just never had to face. And, and it's in the light of this that Jesus' words thousands of years ago could not be more important for, uh, for us to hear. Because when we talk about um, uh, uh, especially the broken part of sexuality and lust and anything that goes down that line towards uh, when, Jesus talks about adult, uh, when Jesus talks about adultery, um, it tends to bifurcate our souls. It tends to make us two different type of people, right? One person that can live in, uh, lives with turning in one, uh, in one direction and then living a completely separate life with our sexuality and hoping the two never meet. For those of us who know our God in Scripture, this is never the design that God wants for us. So Jesus gives very uh, pointed words about a, a really difficult subject that often we don't talk about right here in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, if you could bring up the passage, let's, um, let's read the passage. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. If, uh, here you go. sorry, I was, I was reading from the monitor. <laughs> it's, for, thank you. it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said that anyone divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her a victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus' words. Let us pray. Father, bless these words to our hearts, to our minds. Help us understand who you are. That why, Jesus, you would tell us these things. And I, we just ask a good congregation that you would make us healthy, that you would make us whole when it comes to thinking and acting and responding to the sexual brokenness that we live in. And we pray this, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Yeah. Boy, these are words uh, that if I, we probably, again, ever needed to hear, we need to hear. And as Jesus starts off, here in the, um, in the Sermon on the Mount, if we remember Pastor Calvin's sermon last week, it's a very similar structure of what Jesus is doing, right? Remember Pastor Calvin, I, uh, Pastor Calvin talking about it, um, you know, if you, if you hate in your heart, you've already committed murder. Jesus says, oh, by the way, if you've lusted in your heart, you've already committed adultery, right? So why is Jesus doing this? Why is he a... An, um, you know, give, giving us this. And, and you can understand he's repeating this pattern for a reason, right? And it's that word that Jesus is saying, you have heard, but I tell you. So he's, he's setting things up. 
He's actually raising the bar. He's raising the standard. In other words, sometimes we think, oh, Jesus came to get rid of the Old Testament law. But what Jesus is doing here is he's actually fulfilling the Old Testament law. He's like, here was the law. No, no. It's, it's higher than that. So anytime you ever have faced anything where people are like, how come it says this in the Old Testament? And why does Jesus, you know, do things this way? Jesus is saying, I tell you. When he's saying that, he's like, no, this, is, this was the heart of the law. Right? I'm not canceling it. I'm not saying, yeah, that was the law. Let me do this. Let me just springboard off that into my... That's not what he's doing. He's fulfilling it. He's going to the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. Right? He's not canceling it out. Now, the word that he uses here for lust right, um, is um, in the command not to commit adultery is, is, is used for that sexually lustful you know, um, attitude, but it's also connected to coveting. So let me, big picture so we understand things. When Jesus is doing his ministry, he's constantly taking all of the rich stories of the Old Testament and he's reliving them. This is part of him being a prophet. And so he feeds the 5,000, but he but what happens with the 5,000, right? Like all of a sudden people, right, it, it, it works. And you're like, wow, that was a miracle. But what Jesus was retelling, he was retelling the story of the children of, the Isra- uh, uh, children of Israel in the desert when God fed them with manna. He's retelling that story. And if you think about it this way, it's almost every time Jesus retells these stories, he's saying, it used to happen this way. Remember back then when, we did, when this happened, and then they, then, they, then they mumbled, remember they grumbled and they were upset with God? This time we're going to retell the story and we're doing it in faith, we're doing it correctly. Almost every miracle, almost every parable, all those stories, almost, so many of them connect to that Old Testament, those, these Old Testament stories of faith. The Sermon on the Mount is, not, is, is no different. So Jesus, even as he says this short, this short passage, he is bringing up what? The commandment, that uh, if we go to the Ten Commandments, do not murder, I'm mean, sorry, that was your pastor come. do not commit adultery, do not covet anything from your neighbor. And what is he doing? Jesus is um, not only adding to those, but he's filling it out right? Before it was black and white. When Jesus speaks of it, he speaks of it in color. It's high, you know, I think of it as high definition. And so, as he looks, as we look at, at, at lust, and he uses that word, and that word of coveting, it's really that attitude of the paperclip, that what I have isn't enough. I don't like the state I'm in. This isn't enough. Jesus says, God, God is um, always for us making sure that that attitude is poison to our, to our souls. I don't have enough. God, you're not enough. Right? Now, Jesus is also speaking to, to this crowd, to the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. Why did God intend to give us the law? And what was the, you know, 
What was the spirit of it? If you are a parent and you have children, which would make you a parent technically, right? That you know that a child can obey at some of those points in life. They can obey you with the wrong spirit. I don't know how many times my child has come in. Okay, I did it, dad. Like, I don't like it. I wasn't happy, but I did it, right? And, um, and it's caused me to think of those words that I brought this child into the world. Can I please take them out of this world, right? When they're being, when they're being that way. But you, we know that we can, we've seen that, right? And this is what's happening. This is what's more than likely happening here. There were ways around um, within the culture of Jesus' times that you could fulfill the law to the letter, And Jesus is like, you're missing the point. You're going around this. Now, let me give you a current day example that's probably something we don't hear. My friends who work in uh, another country uh, as missionaries um, on the other side of the earth um, work in a a culture that religiously has more, uh, it's not uncommon for people to have more than one wife. And my friend told me this story. He says it's very common in this culture that, they, uh, that, that the, um, the man will go on a business trip. And so they have three or four wives. They, on paper, will divorce one of their wives. And then they will go to another city, go to what would probably be considered a, a brothel of some sort, on paper, marry the person, spend the night with them in the morning, <laughs> right? <laughs> Fill out the paperwork, divorce them, go back home and remarry their wife religiously, they've done everything. They've done anything wrong. They were allowed to divorce their wife. They were allowed to marry somebody, divorce them. That was, it was all above board. But the spirit of the law was, right, was broken. Now, that's an extreme example, but I just wanted to show you, I just wanted to give you a picture of the things that we will do, and they, then they become culturally, right? They become, they become culturally acceptable to us, that yes, you can do that, and that's all on the up and up, realizing that um, with this, it could grieve God's heart. Now, again, example, a far-fetched one that we don't hear to make the point, um, what were all the small things within, within the religious leaders that were doing things that said, it's okay to have this part of your life be sexually broken, to, and Jesus says, no, let me go to the heart of this. It's the heart, it's the spirit of the law that got, that, that Jesus was, um, that he cared about. And then we see Jesus using this hyperbolic language. He says, don't lust. And in fact, right, it would be better for you to gouge out your eye. It'd be better for you to cut off your heart than, than to, right, enter, than to have that keep you from entering into the kingdom of God. Now, we understand that this is hyperbolic language. We use this all the time, right? And we go, oh, why would Jesus do this? I, my daughter going back to school um, uh, uh, three or four weeks ago, I picked up her bag and I looked at her and I said, this thing weighs a ton. I would hate for somebody a thousand years from now to break that down and says, well, back in those days, they didn't really have a good sense of measure. No, it's hyperbolic. We know it, it, you know, it actually weighed 51 pounds because when she went to put it on the plane, they weigh it and anything over 50 pounds, right? Uh, they add a fee onto it. 
And so I have a family problem with that. But the idea is that Jesus is using hyperbolic, um, hyperbolic language. Why does he use hyperbolic language? Why would Jesus say, gouge out your eye? That's, that's a terrible picture, right? How much stronger could he say it? What would be any other language that he could use that would be stronger than to look at people and say, you understand where this road leads and what it would cost you? It's not Jesus just being playful with his language. It's Jesus almost doubling and tripling down. How important is our sexuality, is lust, and for those people going down the road, him speaking specifically to the men in this culture, he says, it will cost you everything, even your soul. And he says it in a way that even though it's hyperbolic, to not miss the fact that you go, oh, right? There's a handful of times Jesus repeats himself and he uses language to make a point. And this is one of those times. And lastly, I would say with just looking at our passage, our sexuality and our souls, when Jesus is saying this, are somehow intertwined. God, and, and this is the wonderful thing that we can take comfort in with Jesus' words. That God made, God made us this way. He understands. This is his design. And he also understands, right, the difficulty when these, um, the, the difficulty is when we use our sexuality in a broken way, right? Somehow our sexuality and our souls are intertwined. You know, in James, uh, he talks about this really specifically, about the snowball effect that lust or any time uh, time we go down the road, um, how uh, how it affects us. James 1 says, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. And then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. Right? Um, Anytime we give ourselves over. Now, we're talking both, and and the word is generous, because the word is sexual lust, but it's also anything we covet. We think that that thing will fulfill us. Right? Having the thought, right, is nothing that God says is sin. Giving yourself into that thought is sinful. Augustine uh, has, a, has a lot of thoughts around that. Like, where, where does that happen? And I don't think God ever wants us to beat us off because random, uh, random thoughts come through our heads. God, oh, a terrible person. No, no, no. I, I, I want to be clear about that. It's when we give ourselves over, over to it. Somehow lust, sexual sin, coveting are this steep hill that God goes, we can easily roll down. Think about, um, think about David and Bathsheba. David has everything, but he wants more. And what ends up happening? And that story, um, it, it, ends up, uh, it ends up costing David everything. Really, it's just, it costs him a ton of, you go through and read the story. What happens with Solomon? Solomon is the wisest man in the earth. And yet at the end of his life, God had told him specifically not to take foreign wives. 
And then that same way it says at the end of his life that his heart was turned from God. How many key Christian leaders in our own generation have lived this bifurcated life and all of a sudden we find out that there was affairs, there was abuse, they were, right? One person that seemingly God was using in all these amazing ways and then privately their sexuality was the bigger and better paperclip to it got to a point where they had to confront it. And Jesus' loving words to us is to say, um, I don't want you to be, I, I don't want you to, to live this life. He doesn't want us to live in this way. And so talking about it is better than not talking about it. And Jesus lovingly tells us, guys, cut off your, cut off your hand before you let this. It's that grave. It's this dangerous. The hill is that steep. And it's easy for us to tumble down it. Okay. Now, Another backdrop to this is this, is that the, um, the bifurcated life was actually acceptable back in this day, as it is probably today. But there, was actu- there were actually Christians. The first, one of the first big heresies of the church was Gnosticism. And uh, we see 1 John written specifically, uh, specifically uh, against it. But Gnosticism said, I can love, in one, of the, one of the arguments for, in Gnosticism was, I can, worship God with, I can worship God with my spirit, but with my body, because my body is evil, I, just, I can do other things. So as long as my spirit, it was actually an argument for being bifurcated, not, not for a holistic life. And so this is also the backdrop of, our time, of, of these times, that you could, be, you could be bifurcated. And so the question I think that we have to ask is this, and we have to ask it personally, we have to ask it about our families and about our community. Can our souls and our sexuality be bifurcated? Is that an acceptable thing for us? Maybe put another way, is this a part of our lives that we should ever hide? God said, I think Jesus says, no, we don't have to hide this area of our lives. Now, one of the, one of the um, pathways that goes with this, and, and I say this, um, you know, growing up in my generation, was seemingly that um, lust, adultery, even divorce, seemed to be like at times uh, talked about as like victimless crimes. Like, what's, what's the harm? Outside the church, out absolutely. But even inside the church, I've had friends say, well, it's not really that big a deal. Yeah. And, and I think this also has to do, like, the last two years, I don't know, it's just anecdotal, uh, but I don't know how many times you'll be watching, streaming a series, and they show people within relationships, within sexuality, and I always have to say, my wife gets, Pam gets sick of me saying, I'm like, it's... It's fiction. This is fiction, people. And there's nobody. It's my dog. He doesn't care. I'm like, fiction, right? There's no ramifications. In real life, there are real ramifications, right? That people, you know, people in our, the stories we tell ourselves, all right? You know, people have affairs, people hook up, and they're happily ever after. It does not work that way. People 
you know, people divorce for seemingly no reasons or for their own selfish reasons, and everything's hunky-dory. I'm like, it doesn't happen that way. Many of us have lived through those hard things. We know the cost, right, of people, um, of people misusing their sexuality. You know, and uh, the illustration I would use, I, in my mind I went, it was almost like when I was working at City Team and the guys in the program would go buy lottery tickets. And I would look at them and I would say, you know lottery tickets are, right, <laughs> are a tax on people that can't do math. You do realize that, right? It's, it, it, they, they don't work. And if, but their thrill usually wasn't in winning, it was... It was in that first part where they would buy the ticket, be excited, scratch it off, and then realize that they had spent $50 and they had won three back. That was their thrill. And they go, one day it's going to pay off. It doesn't pay off. And in fact, sexually, uh, working in the trafficking field, we work with a lot of victims of, of right, sec, um, sexual, traffic, sexual trafficking and people that were addicted. Um, Bell Hooks. A woman and said it this way. And imagine she's she's saying this outside of scripture, but I think she sums it up here. She says, Most men think that sex will provide them a sense of being alive, connected, that sex will offer closeness, intimacy, and pleasure. The lottery. Right? And more often, uh, more often than not, sex simply does not deliver the goods. This fact does not lead men to cease obsessing about sex and intensifies their lust and their longing. I remember reading that a few years ago and, and, and just being like, that is it. Instead of, instead of figuring out that, the lo- that that lottery doesn't work, that it, it intensifies it more and our souls and our, become, more, become more separated and bifurcated. Because we know that there's consequences to this. Let me just really say this really, uh, really quick. Right? Um, it's not victimless. Right? We, it, it costs ourselves. Like, well, that's just what I do in the privacy of my own life. Very, right? This is a very Western American thing. But what does is, what is, uh, Paul say in 1 Corinthians? He says this, flee from sexual immorality. And say stand up to it. This is, this is over and over. Remove yourself. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. So somehow our sexuality and our souls, because if they are intertwined, Right, that um, that it will dull our relationships. It will it will it will drain the energy out of our spiritual lives. If this is something, if you find yourself, this is one of the gauges you, you, we have to look at. If you find that your relationship with God is somehow waning, like I just doesn't have any energy. One of the gauges you look at is our sexual lives. Where's your sexual thought life at? Where's your thought life when it comes to coveting? If only I had that relationship. If only my family was like this. If only I needed, right? 
if I had the better job, if I worked this hard, whatever it would be, when we covet, right? And I, I want to make a distinction there too. And these are, right, these, these are great lines and, and I, I think really wonderful things for us to talk about with our great friends, uh, with, our, with our friends. Where, um, where does aspiration become coveting? discuss. <laughs> but really, like, where is it a good thing that, right, um, your daughter works hard to make the soccer team? And then where's the thing where it becomes, right, I, I need this job because it will become my identity and my security. I don't, God is over here. I need this. This will make me happy. I think this, these, right, those are the discussions with strong Christian friends that help us parse out when all of a sudden we're going in our own direction and when we're going in God's direction. But what we do know about our sexuality is that, um, that when it's wrong, it drains the life out of us spiritually. So it's one of the gauges on the dashboard, if you will, that we always need to be watching. If I'm dull, wait a minute, maybe it's not God, maybe it's not this, maybe it's me. Um, and it's usually, and, and um, what happens when we lust after somebody that Jesus has talked about, you've lust after her, uh, uh, men, if you lust after them, it's almost like you've committed, a, you've already committed adultery in your heart. What we're doing is we're objectifying that person, right? And when we objectify that person, we remove the image of God from them. We make them one-dimensional. And we can do this with a lot of things. So if only had that person do what? Oh, right? We do this with a lot of people. Like, um, we don't understand it. You, know, like, you love sports. Like, Steph Curry is one-dimensional. Like, I just love the guy. Went on the basketball court doing that. Outside of it, I don't care. Why didn't that person get vaccinated? That's stupid. Why? They're one-dimensional in my life. I just need them to show up and play the game. Right? Now, that's really simple. But when it comes to lust, we make people one-dimensional. If only had that relationship, it would be fantastic. If I had this person, right, instead of keeping them in God's image, we actually make them in our own image. This person exists for me. And that, the Father is never there. We must always view people in God's image and value them, even if they don't see that in themselves. Even if they say, it's okay to see me one-dimensionally. whether it's the homeless person that has forgotten, whether it's the person that has um, maybe faced abuse, whether it's the um, young person that's caught in pornography or prostitution that says, I've been told and forced, you know, forced to think of myself this way. We as Christians go, no, it's Jesus, right? Do you think Jesus ever saw Mary Magdalene as a prostitute. He did. He saw her as the dear woman that God created, and she was in his inner circle. We must always fight, especially sexually, to make sure that we never view people through that cultural lens. And I don't know for you, I need a, I need a team of people around me. So it does, as Paul says, has ramifications on us personally. It also has ramifications on others. And it has ramifications on the community because... Um, on others, because it, it does affect, right? People that go in this direction, it affects other people. And just the, 
my daughter, even this week, had to, she called me up and said, Dad, you're not going to believe what happened. She, her and her roommate just signed up for this gym. The second week they're at this gym, she has to go to the manager because there's this man, not boy, not peer, man, like dad. And, and my daughter sometimes, I don't know if you know this, like my daughter is 20. She goes, he was old. He was really old. Like how old? Like maybe as old as you. I mean, not, that's exactly what she says. I'm like, oh, that's terrible, right? But, um, but this man not only is just sitting and staring at her in the gym to the place my daughter has to turn and say, is there something a matter? He goes, no, I'm just here to make friends. And Kate's like, what? And I guess he's done this to a number of people. And what, what does that have to do when, when somebody crosses over to that and gives themselves over to this? And again, I don't know this gentleman, but we found out that this was now the fourth or fifth person that had complained. He had an agenda, whatever that agenda was. And again, I don't know his complete, his heart. Um, but um, my daughter now says, I don't know if I want to go back. I know I don't want to be here at this time. Now I'm going in and I'm not thinking about what I want to do. I'm thinking about, right, controlling the environment. Right. Have you ever been stereotyped? Ever been thought about one-dimensionally in your work, at school, with friends? Our sexuality, when people, when we give ourselves over to this, we do this to other people in ways that sometimes we don't understand. I know that, um, and Jesus says that we should guard our sexuality. Jesus says that we should um, guard it because it, uh, I believe, because what he's really saying is we're, we're it's the thing that guards our hearts. And yet, this is sometimes one of the most difficult things for us to talk about. It can lead to adultery. It can lead to breaking up families. Even as Jesus is talking about it, what was he saying? He was saying, look, you guys have made it easy in adultery to break up, to break up families just to write a certificate of divorce. And remember, in the other place, Jesus says, well, why did Moses allow that? And Jesus didn't even blink. He goes, eh, it's because of the hardness of your hearts. Because, but it was not that way from the beginning. Right? So when Jesus is talking about lust and he's connecting it to marriages, man, the, 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 the person that was divorced in this time and day, they would be without anything. There are real ramifications to that. I say that because my parents went through divorce when I was 14. My wife's parents went through a divorce. And it's not to say that, uh, and I've had good friends who've really struggled, really fought hard. It's not saying every case of divorce is wrong, you know, that, but it is to say that the ramifications of some of these actions uh, last. It still affects our family 30 some years later. It really does. Um, and so God is loving, is loving enough to tell us this, right? Um, now, in this subject, again, I know this is not easy to talk about, but it's easy for us to be like Adam and Eve and be hide, hide in the garden in this. And just in closing, I want to encourage you, there is nothing better in this area of our lives than the oasis of the community of faith, right? That that there are others, right? We don't do our faith alone. 
Other, other faiths, as you get closer into it, you actually isolate. You go up to the mountaintop, whatever picture that would be. The, the, the picture that Jesus has of the church is he says, no, 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 you need the body of Christ. You need more people speaking into you in higher, again, higher and higher definition. And this is really difficult to take these steps. But maybe that first step would be to either um, find somebody that you would speak to about this and say, this is where I'm at. Or even to ask, how are you doing in this area? Um, personally, I have, in my early 20s, still some of my best friends of this day, we started having this conversation before we were married, during we were married, that it's someplace that somebody could hold uh, not only account, not just accountability, but someone to be there with you. I fantasize about this. I think about that. Yeah, you, right? And just speaking it changes everything. We can't be hiding in the garden. We're supposed to walk with the Father in the garden. So who would be those people in your life that you could do this with? And maybe God is calling you to walk with somebody else in this. How are you doing in this area of your life? It is a big, big step. And many of us um, have struggled with this. Maybe you feel like there's an addiction there. And there's maybe some of us, and that's why I say it's sensitive, that um, have had things happen to them. At, when working at City Team with people that were addicted, uh, they were also addicted to um, uh, to pornography and some, you know, in their in their sexuality, and sometimes it's not about just giving themselves over to it. It was the things that had happened to them in the past, and I just don't go take it any further than that. But if there's something you're dealing with, sometimes it's not what we think it is. Sometimes it's something bigger, and that's why I would say maybe the second step is to seek um, uh, maybe a Christian counselor that could help walk you through that, identify these areas. But one thing we know is that Jesus wants to talk to us deeply about this area of your life. He wants to be with us, with our sexuality. Almost as if we need to be checking in with him weekly. God, here's where I'm feeling. Because it's intertwined, our, our sexuality and lust is also intertwined with, um, with our desires to be known, our desires to have intimacy. And that always comes from God. And so God brings us to say, can you give this to me? Can you hand this over? I know what you need. I made you. I know your struggles. I know your disappointments. I know your loneliness. And the beautiful thing about Jesus in his hyperbolic language is that he goes right to the spirit of the law and he says, don't live a bifurcated life. And we know that, every, that these other places in Scripture, Jesus says, no, walk with me. The more we give, anything we give to him, he heals, he transforms, right? The Holy Spirit will come in and change our hearts and our minds, and he will draw close to us. And as Pastor Calvin comes uh, to do communion, might you take time to talk to the Father about this area of your life? Might we take time to put on the communion table every part of who we are?
every part we give to God, he wraps himself around us and says, thank you. Let's do this. I'm with you. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you talk to us about areas that sometimes are difficult for us um, to share. And uh, Jesus, might, uh, might you speak to our hearts and our minds that we uh, would be able to give you every part of our lives, that we would give you um, permission to rearrange every part of our lives even the ones for some of us that are messy. Thank you, for your, uh, thank you for your words this morning. Multiply them in our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.